So everything Mike said was right. Uh, I, I had a great time. How's that? I'll just keep talking. You let me know how it goes. Had a, a great time in, in May, and I did call. I was always that kid who, you know, when you're a little, uh, uh, there's always that kid who would invite himself over to your house. That was always me. And so I did have a great time here in May. And so just like that little kid, I did call Mike and say, can I please come back? And he was really, really gracious to let me come back because uh, I really had a great time. This is a great community. And, um, you know, this, this morning's proving to be the exact same. Uh, I'm going to do a lot of the talking, but I want us to have some conversation. Um, unlike last time, I'm not here peddling my books, trying to give you as much information as I can. I really want to facilitate a conversation, but I do have some things uh, to share. Um, and really the question I want to frame uh, this time together is how do we as Christians um, navigate difficult conversations? Uh, and part two, why does that matter? Not just how do we do it, but, but why is it actually important to do? Theologically speaking, why does it matter that we have the capacity to have difficult conversations with one another? And so I just want to start with the basic question, which is why is difference hard? And, um, and I see my, uh, you should have some notes. If you don't have some notes, please let me know. There's a bunch of them kind of um, floating around. Um, and the first thing I just want to say is that uh, in terms of, um, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we're kind of at a neurological disadvantage uh, when it comes to difference because deeply wired into our DNA is a survival mechanism, which means that whenever you and I imagine a threat uh, or whenever we feel suddenly very, very vulnerable, uh, we react. It is automatic. It's reflective. Um, it's, it's mindless. No one tells us how to react. We just do that which means that our brains and our entire being is actually designed by God to react to threats and not to meditate on them. And so I'm going to say that again. Uh, our brains, the human brain, is actually designed, when we're not thinking, whenever we're on our autopilot, to react to whatever we perceive to be a threat, not to meditate on them. And so here's my opening question. Is that helpful? What do you think? Is that helpful? I certainly think it was in our past. It was in our past. So, so here's what I'd say. The answer is it depends. Okay? If the setting is my home and you break into my home and you come charging at me with a knife, it is very, very helpful to not sit there and think, hmm, what is my principle for navigating this situation? No, I need to run towards the door, right? It's very, very helpful if it's my home and you break in with a knife. But if it's at church and you come at me not with a knife, but with a different opinion, and you and I have a vocation to model something more whole and unifying to our world, and you come at me with a different idea or a different stance on some politically charged issue, and I fall into fight, freeze, uh, flee mode and react, uh, not only is it not helpful, but it actually works against the very mission we've been given by God. So in such a situation, what would be helpful? And that's kind of what I want to explore this morning. Um, uh, but here's the catch, and, and I think it's worth saying, this is actually something that we need to learn. Our brain actually needs to be trained. Our hearts need to be trained to know that difference itself might feel threatening, but it's not threatening. Not only is it not threatening, but it has embedded within it the very capacity to enrich our common life. And this is what a proper spiritual formation will do. It'll help us to know and to feel that difference itself difference. It is not threatening, but the very thing that God has designed to enrich the body of Christ. Okay, so I want to begin before we kind of dive into some conversation with a few foundational assertions. Okay, this is kind of, if we're going to build a house right now, we're going to lay the foundation. Uh, and so I want to share some of those with you. You have them in your notes, and then we'll have some conversation to see what you might add or what questions you might have. Uh, and these are not obvious. They're not obvious to people in our world, and they're not obvious to us if we don't actually stop to think about it. And that's why we're doing that today. The first foundational assertion is that unity 
and sameness. So we can agree that unity is at the heart of our church. The night before Jesus died, he prayed, Father, I pray that they might be one as I and the Father are one, so that the world might know, right? So our unity in Jesus's mind and heart is tied to our mission. So we can agree that unity is important. And the first assertion is that unity and sameness are not the same thing. They're not even close to the same thing. That unity and uniformity are not the same thing, not even close to the same thing. And that unity and difference go together, that Christians value difference. As Paul writes in his epistle to the Romans, for just as we have many members in one body, and not all the members have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. One body, but many different parts with different roles, different ways of thinking, different ways of engaging the world, different perspectives. All of that is harmonized in one body. So first assertion, unity and sameness are not the same thing. Difference is a value. The second assertion I want us to consider is that difference Valuing difference is actually rooted not just in Scripture, but in the very way that you and I understand the Godhead. I'm sure you know all about the Trinity. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is three persons in one divine nature, meaning that in the Godhead, unity and difference go together. Okay? That's the second assertion. The third assertion is that you and I have a mission to the world. We have a mission to represent this God that is unified in God's difference. And in the Book of Common Prayer, it even says that our mission is to represent Christ and his church wherever we may be. And the third assertion is that thoughtful disagreement, thoughtful disagreement and unity in the midst of that disagreement is part of our witness to the world. That this is not something we do and kind of get all the same page before we go out and bear witness to the world, right? We don't kind of clean up and make sure we're all the same and hoard together in our sameness and then go out and represent Christ and his church. But actually, as the unified different body of Christ, as we learn to engage one another and engage with difference, to do this well, this is actually part of our mission to the world. That's the third assertion. The fourth assertion is that um, this is the exact opposite of what our world values. I don't know if you've noticed, um, this might be the understatement of the year, but if you look at a political process uh, at this kind of given day time um, in our culture, it's not the healthiest, the discourse. Um, it's just not, it's not the healthiest uh, system at the moment, right? We want to win so that someone else can lose. And this isn't about right or left. It's about the entire way of operating. Um, we kind of huddle together. We make compromises. We kind of fuse into uh, a horde of sameness on our party, and then we try to defeat the other party, right? This is all our world knows. And you see a lot of this operating in just the way that we uh, work in our family, sometimes in our churches, that um, it, it's polarized. I mean, there, there's a lot of polarization, and in the polarization, we kind of huddle with our group and we try to win. This is how things often work in the world. Now, you might say that I'm exaggerating, but I don't know if I am. Um, and we are invited by God, I think, to offer a different witness, to offer a different witness than that which we see modeled in our political process at the local, state, and national, and world level. And then finally, the fifth foundational assertion, um, people have a need to be heard. People have a need to say what is so for them. People do not have a need to win. People do not have a need to always get their way. Uh, we have a need to be heard, we have a need to express ourselves, we have a need to take in the opinions of others, but actually, we don't always have to win. 
That's, that it might feel like a need, but it's actually not a human need. Uh, it's not a psychological need. It's not in our best interest. And so those are the five foundational assertions. I'll say them really quickly again, and then I want to hear your thoughts. Unity and sameness, not the same thing. Difference is valuable because it's rooted in our understanding of God. Thoughtful modeling of difference is part of our mission to the world. The thoughtful modeling of difference is not something that exists in the political process of our world. And then five, uh, we all have a need to be heard and to express ourselves, but actually, no one in this room actually needs to win. <laughs> um, I'm gonna pause here and just kind of see what your thoughts are, um, what you might thoughtfully disagree with, uh, and what you might wanna add or take away from what I've said, or what questions you have. Yes. I have thought for some time that if all of the cell towers in the United States would go down, it would ease the discord or because everybody's on their phones and and texting and, and Facebooking and Twittering and if we could actually talk to each other face to face, it really might make a big difference. So um, the comment being made is that um, uh, this right here, you know, having our face buried in this 24-7 uh, might exasperate a problem. And what I, would, what I would say is that I tend to agree with you that, that this itself is not the problem, but it's a big thing of gasoline on, on a fire that kind of takes something that's already there and blows it up, our hyper-connectivity. You know, it's really, really easy for me uh, if you post something on Facebook that I don't like, instead of looking you in the eye and taking you to lunch, and it's, it's just really easy to post. I don't actually have to, you know. There's a, um, uh, I'm on a, a, a neighborhood kind of chat group and someone posted this phone, uh, this funny uh, picture the other day of um, uh, two um, kids in one of those wagons and they were both like talking on their, their uh, toy phones. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, someone like posted I wonder where they get that behavior from, must learn it from their parents. And then the parents posted, come to my house at 4.30 and say, you know, it, it just blew up into this massive fight that was going on online and, and kind of made me think of exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Any other thoughts or, or questions about the, yeah. I think that is so, so wise that so often it's not what we say, but how we say it that makes all the difference in the world. Because, and, and, and the truth is, is that um, uh, neurologists and everything, they would all agree with you that um, people respond 90, I mean, I'm just gonna use the word for like, I mean, it sounds very new agey, but people respond to our energy a lot more than they respond to our words, what we're actually giving off. Am I for you? Am I listening to you? Am I giving you the benefit of the doubt? Because we've all experienced um, a mismatch between people's words and their facial expressions. You know, when they say, oh no, I'm not mad at all. And they're just like looking at you like they're just so angry, you know? Uh, and so I, I tend to agree with you there. How we say something is very, very important. Yeah, Mike. Because we'd be isolated from the community for even wondering that. So shouldn't wonder, right? Just need to know the answers. And you know, there's this adage that when you're with your in-laws, you never talk about politics or religion or money, right? <laughs> and, and so and we know that. We've been indoctrinated into that because those things we're told are inherently divisive. That's right. And, and so it's, it, it seems like there's just socially we're kind of formed that way to think we shouldn't air religious opinion that's going to result in ourselves getting rejected. So it's better if we just not talk about it. Yeah. And, and that has gotten into churches as well. Um, and people, I think, are just very hesitant to offer any opinion that's different from uh, some kind of perceived orthodoxy. Yeah. And, and whatever the perceived orthodoxy is, it, it varies from community to community, from culture to culture. 
but there's always the dominant perceived orthodoxy of a community, of a family, that unless you're really intentional about engaging in difference, unless you intentionally value and practice it, it's both. You have to value it and practice it. You kind of get the cues like, don't talk about this. If you say about this, these are the acceptable things to say. And, and I think, you know, part of while we're having this conversation is that the body of Christ can do a little bit better than that, I think. I mean, we have the skills and the resources to model thoughtful uh, conversations about topics and about things that the world says can't talk about. Yeah. 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 We have a lot of fear that being an engineer and being taught to evaluate hazards with statistics and rationality, we have a lot of people fear threats that are not as likely as being hit by lightning. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let me just say something right now, and, and, and if you've never thought about this, I really want you to think about it. Um, it's possible that 90% of the things, um, so, so, the, so here's the thing about the human mind. The human mind uh, is very good at generating stories that are coherent. And so the mind cares about a few things. It, it cares about quickness, like the mind's gonna figure things out very, very quickly. It cares that the story you tell is coherent and makes sense. Your mind actually doesn't care whether or not the story you tell is factual or true. Um, and so um, let's just say um, that, um, um, I, let's just say I'm super sensitive and afterwards I'm shaking hands and, and no one actually says anything about my sermon, right? Um, my mind's gonna make up a story about that. It's gonna, well, they didn't like my sermon, or I'm a bad preacher, or I'm not welcome. Well, none of that's actually true, but my mind is gonna be, th my mind, if I'm not intentional, is gonna make up a story about what I experience. And our mind is always doing that. Um, and so it's really, really interesting. Part of, I think, emotional, spiritual maturity is, is to be able to be self-aware and to say, okay, th I, this is what I'm feeling, it's negative. This is the story my mind is actually telling me about this feeling. Is it true? Is the story true? And nine times out of 10, if we actually do that work in community, we're gonna realize actually that the story our mind is telling us about any given situation that's painful uh, is not entirely true. It's just interesting, yeah. Um, one more comment, then we'll kind of dive into some of the skills, yeah. That's right. Yeah, thank you. So let's kind of dive in. So now we've done a little bit of foundation work. I want to offer five skills, just things that we might think about kind of adopting uh, in order to navigate difficult conversations. Again, whether that's a difficult conversation at St. Thomas the Apostle Episcopal Church or a difficult conversation in your workplace, a difficult conversation in your family. Um, the first thing I want to offer, skill number one, is to stay humble about your opinions. To stay humble about your opinions. Um, it occurs to me that the story of humanity's fall in Genesis chapter 3 happens whenever humanity dares to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that can mean many things, but you know, one way that's been interpreted over the years is that uh, the beginning of the fall in any human relationship is whenever I am positive, I know exactly what is good and evil, uh, and my knowledge of good and evil differs from your knowledge of good and evil. You know, we both eat from that tree, but we disagree, then we actually start fighting over it. Um, I want to share this quote uh, from Gerald May, he wrote a book called uh, The Dark Night of the Soul, but it's an interesting quote to uh, begin this book. He writes, I must confess that I'm no longer very good at telling the difference between good things and bad things. 
Of course, there are many events in human history that can only be labeled as evil, but from the standpoint of inner individual experience, the distinction has become blurred for me. Some things start out looking great, but wind up terribly, while other things seem bad in the beginning, but turn out to be blessings in disguise. I was diagnosed with cancer in 1995, which I thought was a bad thing, but the experience brought me closer to God and to my loved ones than I'd ever been, and that was wonderfully good. The chemotherapy felt awful, but it resulted in a complete cure, which I decided was good. I later found out it also caused heart disease and now has me waiting for a heart transplant. At some point, I just had to try give, at some point I had to give up deciding what's ultimately good or bad. I truly do not know. That's the last, I truly do not know. So in today's reading from Philippians, um, uh, Paul writes, let the same mind be in you that's in Christ Jesus. It's what I'm preaching on uh, at both services. But whenever Paul says everyone be of the same mind, he's not talking about everyone having the same opinion about what's good or bad for the, com the community, what's good or bad for the world. Because the irony of everyone having the same mind when that mind is Christ is that it is a mind that is always emptying itself to be in relationship with someone else. Right? It's, it's a mind that is always letting go of everything, including our opinions. Um, one of my favorite authors, Robert Capon, he gives the image of an open hand. So he says, everyone, you know, everyone do this. Hold your hand out like this. Okay? And he says, I want you to imagine all sorts of good things falling into that hand. It could be you know, being um, talented and good looking. It could be having the perfect family, the perfect job. It could be M&Ms. It could be a weekend in Mexico, whatever it is. And he says, whatever falls in your hand, there's only two ways that you can relate to it. Okay, y'all did a great job. He said, <laughs> he said, you can clutch, right, when life puts things in your hands. But whenever you clutch and you try to hold on, you close yourself off from anything else falling in that hand. Or you can just keep your hand open and let things fall on that hand and be open over a lifetime. And what I would submit is that in order to navigate difficult conversations, we have to have that open hand, right? We have to um, not cling to our opinions, not clutch to our opinions as if they were a significant part of ourself. Um, no, the significant part of ourself is declared in baptism where we're marked by Christ's own forever and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Our opinions are just things that we hold. And so the question isn't, aren't we going to have them? Of course we're going to have opinions, but how are we going to hold them? Are we going to clutch knowing what's good and evil? I know. You know, I'm, I, I, no need to be humble. I know what's good and evil. I'm going to clutch. And uh, I'm only going to hang out with people who clutch to the same idea as me. Or are we going to hold them a little bit lighter, having the mind of Christ, being ready to part ways with them, if love demands it. So that's the first skill I offer, to stay humble about your opinions. I'll offer one more, then we'll pause for conversation, okay? The second is you got to watch out for contempt. Um, Jesus once asked the question, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and don't notice the log in your own eye? Uh, and notice Jesus doesn't say, um, why is there a speck in your brother's eye? He doesn't say, why is there a log in your own eye? He asks the question, why do you see it? Like, why do you even see it? What is it about you that sees the speck in someone's eye? What is it about you that is looking for the speck in someone else's eye um, and then has contempt for them? Um, we, we also see this in, in the gospel where Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, or in Romans where Paul says, and who are you again to judge another person's servant? You know, the point being that we're all servants of God. And so why, why is it your place to judge their life, their stance on issues, their thoughts? Why did you set yourself up as judge, judging their opinions? Um, so we fall very easily whenever we cling to our opinions. It's very, very easy to feel contempt for people who see the world different than we do. We see that all over the place in our political discourse. Okay, and these are all connected. So the moment you feel contempt, when you look at someone else and you know they see the world differently than you do, the moment you feel contempt, um, that is spiritual danger. <laughs> spiritual, spiritual danger, and that's a time to step back, to take a deep breath, 
to do your breathing exercises, whatever you do, to read scripture, uh, and to actually be in a relationship with the person whom you disagree with. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. We got 40% of the skills done. Uh, what, what, are your, um, what are your thoughts about those two skills? Um, staying humble about your opinions, holding your opinions lightly, and then also watching out for contempt. Um, any thoughts about that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so the question is what to do when, you know, we don't have contempt, but the other person, we feel like we're receiving contempt. Is that right? Yeah, are you going to give us some strategies for dealing with that? Well, I'll say a few things, and, and then I want to hear the wisdom of the group, because I'm here not as an expert, but as just someone to kind of offer what I know to be true, or what I think to be true, and then, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in this room here who might be able to add in. So I'll, I'll say a few things. Um, I've learned and I believe that um, it is entirely pointless to try to work on anyone else's behavior but my own. Um, it's just a recipe for frustration and for chaos. And so um, whenever I find myself being the recipient of someone else's contempt, uh, I want to do a few things. Um, the first I want to ask, so, so again, remember what I said about the mind. It wants a quick story. It wants a coherent story. I'm going to add one more, but it doesn't care if the story's true. I'm going to add one more thing to what the mind wants. The mind wants you to be the hero of your own story. Okay, so it wants a quick story. It wants a coherent story, and it wants you to be the hero, which means that your mind is never going to instinctively tell you Unless you're really shame prone and you always blame yourself for everything, your mind usually will not tell you that you're wrong instinctively. And so one of the things I want to train myself to do, because life is always a little bit more complicated than that, there's always a dance going on, is I want to ask the question, what is my part here? Because 99% of the time, I'm playing a part. And so I'm going to ask the question, what is my part here in this relational breakdown? Yes, I'm receiving their anger and their contempt. But if my mind tells me that they're 100% at fault and I'm 0% at fault, that's probably not true. So I want to ask the question, what is my part here and how can I change it? And then second, I'm going to ask the question, how, if at all, do I need to set boundaries in this relationship? Um, you know, one of the things we often forget is that there's actually a really strong relationship between compassion and boundaries. We don't think those things go together, but they do. And so um, actually by learning to set better boundaries in some of these relationships, your sense of compassion will go up and your contempt will go down. And so those are the two things I do. I ask, what is my part? And then what boundaries, if any, do I need to set? But what do y'all think? What do you do whenever you find yourself on the receiving end of someone else's anger or frustration or contempt? Yeah. I pray for God to put his hand over my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? So you laugh, but there's a lot of wisdom there. You know, there really is. Um, praying to just be able to keep our mouths shut sometimes is a big win. It really is. You know, we might have to do more than that once we kind of calm down and, you know, give them a call the next day to, to check in once we've kind of collected ourselves. But that's no small thing, you know, breaking a, a cycle of reactivity. Yeah, so let me tell you where I got this research. There's a, is anyone familiar with Brene Brown at the University of Houston and her work on shame and shame resiliency? And uh, I, I've read a lot of her. I think that she's really, really wise. She's done a lot of good research, but that flows directly out of her research um, that we tend to think that those two concepts are opposed, but that she found that the people with the most compassion um, uh, in life actually the ones with the clearest boundaries. And she makes a distinction between boundaries and walls. Right? We don't put up walls. If I put up a wall between me and you, um, I'm not permitted to do that as a Christian. Right? I'm always to be open to all people. But to put a boundary is just to say, this is behavior that I will tolerate, and this is behavior that I won't tolerate. Um, and and to, 
you know, to set boundaries in terms of what I can and cannot do. Um, and so if, you know, let's just say that after this, someone, you know, one of you wants to, to call me and, and yell at me and tell me why <laughs> everything I'm saying is wrong. I know that you would never do that. I'll, I'll answer the phone and I'll listen. And, and you know, if, if we're still talking in about 10 minutes, I'll politely say I, I probably need to go and go talk to my family. But if you keep calling, a boundary would be, you know, I just, I'm, I'm not going to take this phone call. <laughs> you know, w whatever it is, you have, to, you have to know what the boundaries are in any given relationship. Mike, did you have a question? Well, no, I just, just, just commenting further, I mean, you asked what our response is. Um, as a wrestler, the quote I got was, the best defense is a good offense. Uh -huh. And so, quite honestly, when somebody's angry, I get real angry. Um, but that's never helpful. And, and this I'm learning with my kids, especially my teenager, right? If I can say, I would love to talk to you when your voice is as calm as mine, and my voice is actually calm, it's a really helpful boundary. And I can even say, listen, I'm starting to get agitated, so in order to listen to you, I, I just I need us to set a different time for this. And, and that's been helpful for me. You know, there's, there's people who have used the clergy cell phone privilege. Yeah. Somebody was calling me way after hours for no crisis, and I blocked his number. Yeah. Because you're going to have to call me at the office. You know, I can't, I can't trust you with my number anymore. And, and what I would say about that is that that makes Mike a more compassionate and capable priest and not a less compassionate and capable priest. That whenever people, you know, it's kind of, you know, the, the book of Proverbs gives the image of a city without walls is always under disrepair. That whenever, whenever we don't have those boundaries in our life, you know, for a while we're trying to be all things to all people, but we actually ignore uh, our own needs as a person, uh, and that just kind of breeds contempt, exhaustion, frustration in the long run. And so I'm, I'm just kind of getting that from Brene Brown's research, and as I've applied it in my own life, I found it to be true. Yeah. Yeah. Back on the subject of staying humble about your opinion, I was listening to the radio yesterday, and I heard a Dylan song from 1964, and a lot of people in this room won't believe it, but I've never heard it before. <laughs> What's that? Deal with what? What's the yet? Believing that God is on our side. Um, what, so, so, so flesh that out. Of, so deal with... Uh, you hear it in defense of so many things. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so that's a good, that's a good actually segue into skill number three. <clears throat> What's that? Yeah, I mean, God is on our side has been used to defend everything. Um, yeah. So there's this great, has anyone seen, um, uh, there's that great book, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan is the, is the Christ, he's the lion, he's the Christ character, and, and, um, and, uh, and, and I forget exactly what the exchange is, but someone says to him, so are you on, you know, are you on our side? And he says, uh, I'm not fully on um, anyone's side because no one uh, is fully on my side. You know, it's kind of that line of I'm not fully on anyone's side. Or I'm, I, I don't know exactly how it does it, but he kind of turns it around to, to basically say no one is fully on my side. And, uh, and obviously uh, the atrocities of the world, not just in, in any, I mean, we can look in our own culture, but you look in any culture throughout the world have always been done by people who, uh, have a, a, a deity in their mind who is fully on their side justifying the behavior. Um, so, so to kind of get into that question, what, what do we do? I'm going to turn to skill number three. Um, and and I'm, I think it's important to know where we stand, uh, to always be open to being moved and to respect where others stand. So um, I think in the body of Christ, um, there's kind of three things that are true for all of us that uh, we're separate, uh, we're equal, we're open. So um, in terms of staying with this, of talking to someone who um, thinks God is on my side, therefore X must be true, well, part of that is that we can be separate and be in relationship, which means that we clearly have to know what our position is and define it. This is actually a mark of adulthood, to get really, really specific and clear 
you know, if you tell me God is on my side, therefore X must be true, and I disagree with that, part of adulthood is to be separate from you and to say, well, this is how I see the world, and I'm going to define my position verbally to you in a very calm, calm way. But the second is um, I want to be open. Um, you know, no matter who it is, the other person always has gifts and perspectives um, that can challenge me, and learning to listen, even when on the surface uh, an opinion seems very, very offensive and threatening and wrong to us, remaining open is always a value. You know, in the book of Numbers, uh, there's this great, this great place where God actually talks through a donkey. I don't know if y'all remember that part in the book of Numbers, but this man is riding his donkey, and all of a sudden the donkey starts talking to him. And I don't know what that means other than if God can talk through a donkey, uh, God can talk through anyone. If God can speak to me through a donkey, God can speak to me through anyone. And being open to the other person, even when their opinion seems outlandish, being curious, asking questions. I've already defined what I believe. This is who, who I am. This is where I stand. Now tell me about your worldview. Where did you come to believe that? Um, God is on our side. Well, who is God to you? Um, you know, beginning to get curious and ask questions that goes a long way because a lot of times whenever I do that and I'm having a conversation with God is on our side, therefore X must be true, and I start asking questions, um, you know, you kind of realize pretty quickly that by asking some good questions, you, you help the other person see that they haven't always uh, thought through things themselves, right? And, and you kind of invite them in asking questions to think through things at a deeper level. But the third thing is equality. I don't think all perspectives are equal, but all people are equal in God's eyes and part of the body of Christ. And so all perspectives might not be equal, but all people are. And so even when someone has an opinion that you really think is outlandish and maybe even harmful, um, being calm, asking them questions, and just remembering that they too are a child of God, uh, and that for whatever reason they arrived at their opinion um, in a way that seems very rational and coherent to them, and, and not losing sight of that, I think, is important. Um, thoughts about that? The fourth skill is to beware of the goat. Uh, that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? No? Um, it's... Um, I was about to make a joke about literally being aware of goats. Um, there's, um, you know, in the book of Leviticus, uh, there's a practice of the people of Israel where uh, they, they'd always, you know, that they would basically take all of their anxiety, all of their sin once a year, and they'd laid hands on a goat. They'd agree that this goat is going to bear all of our sins and all of our anxiety, and they send it off into the wilderness. Um, and I think that we have a tendency to do that. Uh, with people with whom we disagree. Um, that we, you know, so, it, it, you know, if, if, if you grow up in a very conservative environment, uh, the old liberals in the congregation might be that scapegoat. If you grow up in a very progressive environment, the, the couple of conservatives might be the scapegoat. That we have a tendency um, whenever we are in the dominant group in our community uh, to scapegoat and to put all of our anxiety and to build a relationship around uh, one or two people who we think have an inferior contribution or an inferior way of thinking. And I think the only thing I'd add there is just to say that um, scapegoating is something that we just all do. Uh, it, it, it happens. Um, but one of the things I've learned is that the focus of our anxiety is rarely the cause of our anxiety. And if you're overly anxious about a particular issue, if you're overly anxious about a particular stance in your congregation, um, just to, to think that maybe um, that's where your anxiety is focused, but that it might not actually be causing your anxiety. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but that the focus of our anxiety isn't always the cause. Um, the final skill, and then we'll open it up for some more conversation, is to practice dialogue and not discussion. Um, there is a big difference between dialogue and discussion. You know, the word discussion, it comes, 
from the same root as the word uh, percussion, you know, noise. Um, you know, Paul says uh, that um, if I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So often our discussions are nothing but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I mean, we've all been part of those conversations where you're not actually even listening to the other person. You're actually listening through the lens of, how am I going to combat this perspective and put him or her in their place? Um, you know, a lot of times we go to meetings, and, and the whole point of the meeting, we think, is just to, to win whatever argument's being discussed. Um, and that level of discussion uh, isn't very helpful. Uh, dialogue is actually what's helpful. Um, so the, 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 the root of the word dialogue, dia, uh, means through and through, and of course logos means word. And so whenever we have a dialogue, we're actually letting our words, letting our thoughts uh, flow through us, through and through. We truly take on the perspective of someone else. We get very, very intentional about saying, how is it that Bob sees the world? Um, not how do I uh, respond to what Bob is saying, but how do I take in what Bob is saying? Um, and, that, and, and so there's, there's a little bit of a difference between dialogue and discussion. And I think learning to dialogue, learning to uh, take in the perspective of other people is a big skill the church needs to learn. Um, okay, thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Today. Yeah. So beware the feeling of anxiety because it may be based on a fear that's no longer true. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, my my therapist calls that the ninety ten rule, which is that in the moment ninety percent of my emotion is from the past and only ten percent is from the present. But we usually think a hundred percent of it's from right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was really present to number four um, uh, with the, the recent um, stuff over the bathroom bill. Um, and and I, I'll, I'll, I'll say a few things about that. One is that I, I don't know, I, I didn't read the bathroom bill. Another is that I you know, deeply care about justice and want uh, members of the LGBTQ community to, to feel honored and valued, whatever that means. But I didn't actually read the bill, and, and I don't know what was in the bill. And, but I do know that for a while, 100% of us were all talking about the bill. Uh, all of our anxiety was around this bill. And what's difficult about that is that that means that there's a lot of local injustice in our communities and some other things going on in the world where our hearts were turned away because there was just one goat, this bathroom bill, that we were all laying hands on and fighting over. Meanwhile, all this other injustice is going on that's very, very sneaky. And so the other thing about whenever these big issues, and, and the issues change, but the process whereby we all kind of focus our anxiety here and then fight about it, um, that's pretty consistent. And so I think it's helpful to know whenever um, our focus collectively is on one place, and we've all agreed this is where we're going to focus our anxiety, um, because that's a place where we can actually have dialogue instead of discussion. But it's also good to remember, if all of our anxiety is here, are we ignoring other issues in our community too? That's the thing about scapegoating. Whenever we're all in one place together, uh, the rest of the world just kind of goes on, and we're not showing up there. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. Yeah. To not use the what? Yeah. Yeah. 
injustices are happening in the present, and yeah. they later become the thing that people have trauma about on down the line. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing you say is it's important not to use this as an excuse not to actually look at real injustice when it, when it comes and to act. You know, I think, I think we've all, it's very uncomfortable to be called out, you know? No one likes it. I mean, I, I try not to call uh-huh. people out. But if you find yourself, if anyone finds, I mean, just saying, like sometimes if someone is saying, you know, hey, please, you've hurt me, please don't, you know, certainly please don't say in response, you know, like, hmm, what's the origin of this feeling? Right. Of course, and so that, that, that that's such an important point, and and I think um, one of the things I want to be really clear about that's true for me is that this is that these skills these are not things it's not our it's it's not our our mission to impose them on anyone uh, but but ourselves. Right. Never is it okay when someone, at least in my view of the world. When someone is upset with you, um, this is where boundaries come in, to say, I hear everything you're saying, but please be reminded that um, all of your anger is from your past and has nothing to do with me, and your mind is making up a story. <laughs> that is never appropriate, right? That, that the work is to do that in our own life. And so that's a really, really helpful comment you make, that never are we supposed to be doing this with other people. Like the, and this is, this is the thing. It's, it'd be a lot easier if this were a map to change the other people. Right, that is not the business we're in in the church. We're not in the business of trying to change other people. We're in the business of letting God transform our own hearts. And so uh, please ask the question, not how do I teach these five skills to my kids, not how do I teach these five skills to my spouse, not how do I teach these five skills to the person on the other side of the political aisle that I don't see eye to eye with. That is to entirely miss the point. The only relevant question for every single person in this room is, how do I think through these assertions and these skills in my own life? How do I stay humble about my opinions? How do I watch out for contempt in my heart? How do I define my position and be open to the position of others? Who am I scapegoating and how do I stop that nonsense? And how do I practice dialogue and stop yap, 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 discussing, sharing my opinion? The moment we try to do this work for someone else, we've 100% lost. Yeah, that's a great, great comment. Mike? Seems like there's another, another thing that happens sometimes with a global perspective that can be really um, harmful to a real dialogue, which is that there's a niche issue being put up, whether it's injustice or not, and somebody says, we can't talk about that now. There's so many other big things in the world, which is a way of saying that the thing that you care about is not worth considering in comparison to the world, right? And, and again, Sometimes the global perspective is a weapon. Sure. I've, I've certainly experienced that as well. Um, and then the, I just uh, just another thought about humility. I had a professor in, in college, good Anglican professor, actually, the only one I had. And um, he said, you know, a lot of times we, we think humility means thinking poorly of ourselves. But a definition he offered that sticks with me today is that humility is living into exactly who God made you to be, uh, no more but no less. Yeah. And so sometimes when we are an expert on a subject, it's okay in humility to say, no, I'm an expert on that. Yeah. Which doesn't mean I don't listen to you, but doesn't mean, as you said, uh, not all of us have the same training and background and education. And, and sometimes it's okay to say, you know, I understand your perspective and where you're coming from. But honestly, the research that I've done is, is saying this and, and uh, standing that sort of firm, sacred, holy ground without attacking from it, um, to me, is an important part of humility as well. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. That's, a, that's great. Yeah, he, C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. <laughs> and I think we could all, you know, I think we could all, I mean, and, and this kind of gets back to these skills are not for other people, uh, they're for us, that I just flat out assume that the greatest barrier to what God wants to accomplish in your life is you. <coughs> Right, the greatest barrier to what God wants to accomplish in my life is me. It's not the other person. You know, don't get me wrong, people are difficult. I mean, <laughs> we all know people can be difficult, and they're difficult because they're just like us. <laughs> you know, but, but to assume um, 
that the, that, because these are really just two different ways to approach it. If the greatest barrier to what God wants to accomplish in your life is you, if you're the primarily per, primary person in need of conversion, that is one way of engaging the spiritual life, and it's going to have certain fruit over the long haul. If in your mind the greatest barrier uh, to what God wants to accomplish in your life is someone else, and they need to be stopped, persuaded, manipulated, cajoled into a different way of being, um, I think that leads to different results. Uh, I think it leads to violent results. But that's just another thing to think through. Um, you know, what does God want to do in your life? How do we forget about ourselves a little bit? Yeah. I'm curious. I, I, this isn't in my notes, but it's an interesting exercise. I don't know where this is going to go. I've never done this. But uh, for that first one about stay humble about your opinions, right? The original sin was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, someone tell me, what do you know to be true? I'm, I'm curious, what do you know to be true? Share something that you know to be true. Gravity. Gra gravity. So that, that's great. Gra I, think, I think that we can say that gravity... I, yeah, and that's, I, I, I think gravity is true. And um, fortunately, and, and the Episcopal Church, or any church for that matter, isn't fighting over gravity at the moment, so we're in good shape there. Yeah. What, uh, what do you know to be true? Yeah. The reason, yeah, I mean, so you know, so what you just shared is kind of paradoxical, but, but what you know to be true is that you don't know a lot. And, and you know, believe it or not, that is uh, the great insight uh, of a lot of the mystics and a lot of those who, um, it, it's been lost in, in recent years, but that um, what the mystics uh, remind us is that faith is ultimately an invitation to mystery, that God uh, can be known, but not with the analytical mind not in the way that I can know gravity is true, but that God is known in a deeper way um, directly from the soul, and that once we start engaging God from that place, everything we think we know with our mind ceases to be uh, as knowable, you know? Um, what do you know to be true, though? Yeah. That, that lesson's worth all the, all the um, you know, anything we're doing here, all the, the worship, the church, if, if we learn nothing but that, 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 that's it. That's all there is to know. What do you know to be true? I know I'll die. You know you'll die. That's actually really, no, that's, that's really important. You know, all of a sudden, that which we know is very humbling. But in that moment when we're just fighting, you know, going back and forth over, uh, you know, whatever it is that we fight about with all the, you know, puffing and puffing of those who know things, you know, um, once we start thinking about it, we really don't know that much. I mean, are we here today because we know everything? No, we're here to receive a piece of broken bread uh, to take in Christ's mysterious body because we intuit at a deep level that we are all mystically bound up together in Jesus Christ. It is faith that draws us here. Uh, it's not everything we know. The basis of our Christian community is not that we all know the right things. That'd be a pretty lousy community. You know, welcome to St. Thomas. We know everything. Here's your gift bag. Right? Who wants to go to that church? I don't. Yeah. What else are you thinking? I'm not going to ask you what you know anymore, but what else is resonating with you or what questions do you have? Yeah. I think sometimes it's also important to realize that no matter how well you listen and you try to get your point across, the other person may never, you may always be wrong in their eyes no matter what you say. And you have to realize that you're not wrong in your beliefs to their your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, St. Paul once said uh, in Romans, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, you know, and, and as we engage uh, our world from our faith, 
uh, we, we engage the world differently. We see the world differently. And, and um, sometimes we just don't meet eye to eye. And, um, but again, gets back to the basis of Christian community. Having the same perspective on something actually isn't really that big of a deal, unless we make it so. I'd say more. We can find the other person interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we can step it up a, a little bit. I, I mean, we can love and care about them, but I mean, we can find them interesting. We can get to know them. We can ask their story. Tell me why you see the world this way. We can remain open. You know, uh, the book of Hebrews talks about how um, uh, and entertaining strangers were actually with angels without knowing it. We can see the other person as a divine messenger sent to speak a word. E- even if we're not going to take their perspective, uh, we can still see every single person as a messenger from God who's meant to be part of our story, the way that we see the world, you know, instead of an enemy or someone that we're combating or trying to win over or persuade. It's just a different way of engaging life. Um, but I think the church's job is to learn that different way of engaging life. Right? I think it is. Mike? I, I think I know. I've never seen this happen, but I think I know that the church should be the safest place where I can disagree with somebody else and not question mine or their value. Yeah. I've never had that experience, but I know that's how it should be. That's certainly the ideal, yeah. Um, I think the way that I would say that, Mike, is that um, in Christian community, grace, right, what you were talking about, unconditional acceptance by God, being loved by God, something that you can't add to, grace is to be the foundation. And if grace is the foundation, that means that nothing said or heard, no opinion, no way of viewing the world should be able to shock, scandalize us, or make another person less valuable in our eyes. Because if grace is the foundation of our community, um, grace assumes that, you know, we're all a little bit more broken than we like to admit and a lot more love than we have the capacity to fathom. And when that's the foundation, a different opinion is just a different opinion. Something to take in and, and learn from or not, but, but certainly not a threat, right? Our opinions are only a threat when sameness is the foundation of our community. Think about that, right? Different opinions are only a threat when, we need to, when um, having to be on the same page about everything mentally is the basis of our community. Fortunately, the basis of our unity has nothing to do with that in the church. And so having difficult conversations is really just the fruit of waking up to that theological truth. Yeah. Does anyone in this room uh, have a successful story they want to share about how you set out to change someone else and how marvelous it went? <laughs> Does anyone have any testimonies about a time you tried to convert another human being into your way of the world and it just worked out marvelously for you and for them? I don't see any hands going up. Just something to think about. Well, I had the opportunity with the, um, pretty much raise a grandson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You made way better decisions than I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my other ones, I made all the decisions, or I thought I was a good parent, and I thought I wasn't a bad parent. But I was a much better grandson. Yeah. Because I learned a lot. So uh, that's great. So Mike, Mike said we're going to wrap up at ten fifteen. So let me just let me just close with these words, and and I'll just kind of say a word or two about them. But this should this is from the uh, the offertory sentence where we say, "Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God." Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself as an offering and sacrifice to God. To walk in love with those who see the world differently is not to 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 convert them to win 
but to give ourselves to them as Christ gave himself for us. Doesn't mean that we take on their perspective necessarily or that we completely throw out our belief system or don't set boundaries. It just means that we treat them as a human being worth laying down our lives for. And if nothing else, that means listening to them and loving them in their difference. You guys have been great. Thank you so much for tolerating my nonsense this morning. Yeah. Yeah.